Tonight is March 31st. It is uh, Wednesday, and we are in Matthew 25. I'm excited because I believe I got a revelation into this tonight. So, hold on a second. Obviously, right before Matthew 25 was Matthew 24. And anybody that's ever read the book of Matthew knows the 24th chapter because it deals with what? The end times. Okay. Having said this many times before, of course, Matthew 25 and Matthew 24 really didn't exist in the original letter. Not that the words weren't there, but that there was no 24 and 25. So if you can get out of your mind that there's a separation between those, a lot of this makes more sense. We're going to cover the parable of the ten versions then we're going to cover the parable of the talents, immediately followed by the sheep and goats. Um, two of these parables are pretty straightforward, and one is pretty greatly misunderstood. Uh, and so we're going to cover some of that today. One of the things that kind of, I don't know, got me excited about this message is the placement of the sheep and goats. I've heard many different things through the years about the placement of the sheep and goats, and I always kind of felt like I knew where it belonged, and at times people have agreed with me about that, and others didn't. And recently, people that I love, that I've trust, have taught something different than what I felt like was right. So I examined it really, really carefully. And you know what? There's not a clear-cut intellectual answer to it. You can make an argument in two different directions, and we'll examine that, but then I'll show you what Jesus showed me about it and it's so good to hear from God. You know, and everybody says they hear from God. I mean, nobody intentionally misleads anybody about that. But we get kind of in the habit of acting as if every word that comes out of our mouth is something that we heard from God. Man, that's just simply not true. Uh, but there's a special feeling that comes when Jesus really does show you something that sets it apart from everything else. It's not just that it seems to fit together. It's not just that you think it may be right or it... You know, most of the commentaries agree with you. You feel an inner witness, and usually it, it involves unlocking something that was previously a mystery to you. Well, tonight that happened. So uh, let's start with Matthew 25. At that time, the kingdom of heaven, well, as we start, at that time, in the context of Matthew 24, what is at that time? What time are we talking about? Yeah, we're talking about the end of the age and the second coming of Christ. Okay? I mean, you remember Matthew 24 began with the question, you know, what will the sign of, uh, of this temple being destroyed, of the coming, of your coming, and of the beginning of the new age be? Well, okay, so we're talking about that time. And that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Now, something that I think gets overlooked with this parable, and it really is something that we will harp on tonight. So if I seem on target tonight with this one point, it's because I, I just don't want you to, to miss it. So I'll probably say it a few hundred times. How many virgins were there? 
right? And five were wise and five were foolish. But I want you to notice something that you may not have picked out before. All of them, all ten, were looking for something. They were all looking for the bridegroom. See, we have a tendency to take the parables that are in Matthew and make there be two parties in these parables. The world, the lost people, and the saved. What I have discovered and what's been kind of a revelation to me as we go through the parables of Matthew, and we're going to recount a bunch of this tonight, is that's simply not true. All ten of these were waiting for the bridegroom. But some were wise and some were foolish. We'll keep going and we'll expound upon that. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Or for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also said, or later the, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Guys, here's the thing. And really this revelation started with us when we taught Matthew 22. We realized as we taught Matthew 22 that an invitation to a wedding feast had gone out to all kind of people. Good and bad, the Scripture says. It went out to the good and to the bad. The call of salvation goes out to the good and the bad. Everywhere. Not everybody who hears the Word responds, do they? Now, here's, here's where the revelation comes, though. Out of those that responded and showed up at the wedding feast, still not everybody was chosen. Many were called, but only a few were chosen. See, some came to the wedding feast. They responded to the invitation. But they found, we found them to be lacking in something. And in our study of Matthew 22, it was the righteous acts of the saints, the, the acts that are produced by faith. That was the garment that they were missing. So they were thrown outside of the kingdom. Here with this parable of ten virgins, we've got the same thing going on. There are ten virgins who are looking for the groom. They're not there like just the average lost Joe who doesn't care, who's not concerned, who, you know, is not looking for anything except a good time. They are waiting for the bridegroom. But half of them were wise, and they had with them oil, and the other half were not wise. This all speaks one man, and we can get, we could argue and not, not necessarily argue, but we could expound on all the things that we think the oil is, and what the lamp is, and you know, I, I personally, when I read that, what I see is some had a relationship but did not have the power of God. The oil, to me, is uh, an increasing measure of the Holy Spirit. They, were not cont- they had some, enough for their lamp to burn for a while, but not enough to get them all the way through. The Bible says to be being filled with the Spirit. That's what I see there, but that's not even the point. The point is, out of all the people that were looking for Jesus to return... Some were disqualified. See, the Bible says only a remnant will be saved. We have a tendency to think that's because, well, only the Christians out of all the world religions will be saved. The resounding message that you'll get tonight as we go through Matthew is that is not the case. 
It's out of the Christians being the masses, the people who wear the name Christ, only a few of those who say they are Christians are saved. It's a remnant of the remnant. And see, that's, that's new thought. Most people, when they see these, these parables, they see the wise virgins as those who uh, are Christians and the unwise virgins as those who are not Christians. I don't see that. Watch this. Now, when I say church tonight, I don't just mean, I mean this gets, where, where this can be confusing. Let me set Matthew in its, in its element for you. And if I stumble around tonight, y'all forgive me. It's a small group. We can do that. But I want you to get the point, even if I don't say it eloquently. The Gospel of Matthew records Jesus' words to whom? The Jews. So is he speaking to people that are not looking for God? No. He's speaking to the elect, the people who are supposed to know about God. This book was not written to, Jesus was not sent to Egypt. He was not sent to Ethiopia. He was not sent to the Far East China. He was sent to a people who are supposed to be looking for Him. The church, if you will. Now, church is a New Testament term meaning those that are gathered. The eclectic group. We, we know that. We've all been there. But the point is... Whether we're talking about the elect today or the elect then, these words were written to people that were already supposed to be in covenant with God. If you start to look at these parables in that light, it makes a huge difference because it does not alleviate us of all responsibility and place everything negative upon those who just are born-again pagans. You know, This places the emphasis on the church In the church, there are those that have oil and those that don't. There are those that are wise and those that are foolish. There are those with wedding garments and those without wedding garments. Follow with me to uh, to the next verse, verse 14. As we read this, I'm trying not to skip over the first two parables to get to the one that I really want to. But as we read this one, I want you to listen to these words. It says, again... It will be like a man going on a journey. What does again mean? Why are we starting again? We're still speaking of that time period that Matthew 24 talked about. Matthew 25 is continuing. We're talking about the coming of the Christ, the ending of what age? This age. Okay, we're we're not talking about the next age. We're talking about this age. That's just a hint as to where I'm going with that. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants. Whose servants? His, and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. I want you to understand something. Everybody we're talking about here is a servant of the same master. They were all entrusted with something. See, that's important because the Bible speaks of everybody in Christ being entrusted with something. We're taught to regard 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, which, boy, we seem to be there a lot as far as our references. It says, you are to regard us then. As servants of God. Men entrusted with the secret things of God. We're talking here about Christians. We're not talking about um, talents just spread across humanity. 
And some use these talents well, and they speak about talents like uh, physical talents. We're talking about money here, by the way. A talent is is money. It's more than $1,000, in fact, in today's currency. We're talking about within the church. We're talking about servants of God. These servants of God, some were entrusted one talent, some five. Oh, I don't remember how many was the And the other two. And what determined how many talents, how much money the master gave them? Their ability. Did you see that? Okay. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. You need to know this about God. Whether we're talking about virgins and oil, or we're talking about a wedding feast and being properly dressed, or whether we're talking about a vine and it producing fruit, like in John, or we're talking about a fig tree, whatever it is, God is interested in His servants gaining an increase. We're not talking about the world. We're talking about those He has entrusted something to. And He wants you to use what He gave you to gain more ground. That's why He he said, uh, since the days of John the Baptist until now, forceful men have have been advancing the kingdom. The kingdom advances as what He deposited with you is multiplied because you are working in the kingdom. Whether we're talking about a a parable with a vineyard or tenants or the two sons, whatever it is, the point is always the same. You have been entrusted, you have been given a purpose, and you must succeed in that. Now, what is almost never preached is, we always somehow work it out to where those that are cut up into pieces and thrown outside, those that are put in eternal fire, they were always those who were lost. That is not the case. What will be painfully evident, and I say painfully because I'm going to say this at nauseum tonight, as we go through these parables, is we are talking about those who have received the call, who have come and are called by the name, that do not produce fruit being cut off. That's what we're talking about. And Jesus said this, I am the vine, you are the... Every, uh, every branch that does not produce fruit is cut off, thrown in the fire. This principle is so ingrained in the Word that it takes a skillful deceiver to get it to mean something other than it does. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who preaches this and doesn't preach it like I do is a skillful deceiver. What I'm saying is the devil has worked very hard to hide these meanings of these parables because it cuts you to the core. As long as you can think about these foolish virgins being some other group of people, as long as you can think about the guy who dug the hole and buried his talent being some other person, as long as you can think about those showing up at the wedding feast without uh, the proper garments being somebody else, it doesn't bother you because you're always the good guy. And in the American church, we got two kinds of Christians anyway, the good ones that get raptured and the bad ones that stay here. Nothing could be further from the truth in the Bible. Nothing. The Bible puts the onus, if you will, on all who wear the name. You either produce fruit or you are called by the King of Kings. Get this. We're going to read it in a minute. A wicked, lazy, worthless servant. 
worthless because he placed something of great worth in you for a great reason. And it was not so that we could sit on our salvation. It was not so that we could form bless me groups and be pillow prophets exclaiming how great one another are. That was not why. He put His Word in you. He put His Spirit in you. He is equipping you because He wants something from you. Now, you were saved by grace. It was a work of faith, and that faith was not your own. But you were saved to do the good work that He ordained in advance for you to do. You were saved for a purpose. There are events, there are places, there are people you are supposed to affect. And if you don't do it, it doesn't get done. What's worse than that, if you squander this salvation, if you spit in His face by refusing to get off your butt in the kingdom, you are called a wicked, lazy, worthless servant. Now, we always think that the way to fall out of Jesus is just to have your faith die and and say that Jesus is a bad guy. Well, that is the end result, but you know what? Your actions can say the same thing. When you refuse to have any fruit in your life, any actions that show that there is faith there, then your faith without works is dead. That does not mean that your works in the absence of faith is alive. It means that there must be works that have been the product of your great faith. All of these parables are aimed at one thing. Getting those who were called, who were in the eclectic group, who were the people of God, because Israel was the people of God, to realize there's a dividing line coming, buddy. Those that have achieved the purpose of the kingdom and those that are wicked, lazy, and worthless. Those that are good and those that are bad. And your fruit is the determining factor. Now, we have no problem seeing this in Israel. We say, oh, well, branches were cut off that I might be grafted in. But now that we have a tree that is made up of the cultivated and the natural olive branches... All of a sudden we think that it doesn't apply anymore. Now, if he trimmed Israel and trimmed those that said they were Israel but really weren't out, how much more will he do it to the new entity, the Israel of God? We need to get this through our heads. Israel was not a unique thing that uh, doesn't apply to us. As if, well, Israel, those that didn't have faith and their actions showed it could be cut off. But in the church, man... Once we've proclaimed Jesus as Lord and believed that He was raised from the dead, then we're, we're just in there like... Yeah, I don't know what a good expression would be. We're just in there. It, it does not work that way. And these parables, when they line up, they hit you hard. All this is going to get to a point, I promise. The man with two talents also came in. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. Now, we think of the one with five as... Great, and the one with two is, you know, not as great. You know, we're right back to our Matthew 23 teaching about how we like to rank people, you know. Junior pastor, pastor, you know, senior pastor, or, you know. What, whatever our ranking system is, that is not right, because how were these given? How were the talents determined to be given? According to ability. God gave you certain abilities. He also entrusted you with things according to those abilities. You know what you were responsible for? Working in proportion to what He gave you. See, if He didn't give you a voice... Who's that actress with the big nose? Uh, Like Barbara Streisand. (laughs) If He did not give you certain abilities and did not give you something that uh, is put on deposit for you to use in that realm, you're not going to be held accountable for that. But you know what you are going to be held accountable for? What He did give you. 
So in that way, you can't judge yourself against anyone else because you were all given different abilities. And you were all given different amounts of money, if you will. Different things put on deposit with you. So one man can't look at another and take pride in his work over the other man's because you're being judged according to what God gave you. Does that make sense? If that's true of men, you know what else is true of? God's church. The church on the corner with five cannot say that they're greater than the church on the corner with 5,000. And the reverse is also true. Because God gave people different abilities and He put on deposit with them different things according to that ability. Your job is to use what He gave you. John the Baptist had the best take on this. A man can only receive that which is given him from heaven. Man, if we could get that in our head, we would quit measuring ourselves against everybody else in order to make ourselves look good. There is no room for small man syndrome, Napoleon's complex, in the church. There's really not. Where all we do is, because we're insecure, is speak in a defeatist attitude about everybody around us. We know it's wrong on a personal level, but somehow we think it's okay on a congregational level. It's not. It's not, and I repent fully. We will not do that here. We will not. I'm accountable to you. You're accountable to me. We're accountable to God. We will not be guilty of that sin. Verse 23, his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many. Come and share your master's happiness. The next thing that you find out that is proportional here, not only were you given talents or amounts of money based on your ability, but then when your return was in proportion with what he gave you, you're given more because you showed yourself faithful. If I can entrust you to handle the abilities that I've given you and reap a a reward above and beyond what I put on deposit with you, then I can trust you to share in my kingdom. That's literally what this life is to prove. Then the one who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. When people that have received from God, and make no mistake about it, you cannot be a Christian and not have received from God. We're talking about those that God entrusted something to. Well, Ephesians tells us that He put His, His Spirit in you as a deposit guaranteeing what's to come. Romans 8 9 tells you if that deposit is not there, then you don't belong to Christ. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, hey, you need to judge yourself. See if you pass this test. And I trust that when you judge us, you'll see that we've passed the test. His Spirit is there as a deposit. So all Christians have been entrusted with something. When you take what He has entrusted to you, go out and dig a hole in the ground and bury it, the result is what happens to this guy. He said, well, who would ever do that? Well... Anybody who would sit in one of these chairs, hear the messages, but never put them into practice. Anybody that feels the tug from God to act, but instead will not act. Pride gets in the way. Fear gets in the way. Whatever it is, you are not allowed to let those things master you. You should be, like God told the prophets, more scared of Him than you are of whatever else it is that's bothering you. We lose our fear of God because it's been taught out of our doctrine. We've alleviated ourselves of any burden to have. We've, we've got the second coming boiled down to a reward ceremony. 
You know? We're, and, and it's like Breck League. Everybody gets to play and everybody gets a medal. The kingdom of God is not that way. And a close examination of the parables will show there is a dividing line that falls on the body of Christ first. Now, the easy way out of this is, well, then they were never in the body of Christ. Well, that's to ignore the context of all of these scriptures. They are a part. They're just not a permanent part. Because none of us are fully saved until we are glorified and with Him. We're in the process of salvation. And if God cuts somebody off that you might be grafted in, then Romans 11 tells us He can cut you off again too. You need to consider both the kindness and the sternness of God. Now, you say, well, is He saying all this to scare us? I'm saying all this so that you will work the kingdom. That's what we're to be about. That should be the primary goal in your life. Not watching friends, not being comfortable, not building a bank account, not bass fishing, not building a bigger shop or having nicer cars, working the kingdom. That has got to be the priority. And if you think that we all stand so firmly, that we're all so sound in the faith, that we could never find ourselves to be a foolish virgin or somebody who squandered the talent that God gave them, then you're deceiving yourself. Because the resounding warning that goes out throughout the Scriptures is to people just like you and me. And he, Paul warns us to stay in the faith. Jesus warns us that the faith of many will grow cold. Actually, he said the faith of most. We need to look at our lives with sober judgment and say, is the kingdom my first motivation? Or do I just say that and it really falls somewhere around fifth or sixth, right behind my comfort? You know? When Christians place their comfort before God's will, they're in danger of no longer wearing that name. Golly, that's hard. Jesus is hard. He's, this is, he, he's the hardest guy you could ever meet. And he's the softest guy. Yeah? You remember he said, by your own, own words, you'll be acquitted or condemned? Listen how he responds to this guy. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned... I would have received it back with interest. I worked for a bank for a little while and I I learned some things there. But before I tell you about the back with interest, here's, here's something to consider. The guy knew up front, the kind of master I serve is the one that wants a return on his investment. The church should know that. And it's not being preached. They're not telling people, your master will require of you a return on his investment. He is not the kind of master that will sit back, pour out the most precious substance on the earth in his blood, and then expect no return on his investment. He is expecting that you work the kingdom, that you produce fruit. So, well, oh, should I be under some kind of burden and, and walk around all the time, hand and attract everybody, worry their blood's on my head? Not at all. The way you produce fruit is by his Spirit's leading. But we deceive ourselves if we think the Spirit's not leading us to do anything but sit on our butts. You know, in every church, not every church, but in the average church, 10% of the people support the other 90%. Now, the way that's always quoted is financially. But do you know what else is true? It's not just financially. It's in 
any project the church does. You can only count on 10% of the people out there to participate because the rest have bought a fire insurance program. Even in churches that speak in other tongues and that prophesy, as long as it's the most encouraging, latest, entertaining message, as long as the most up-to-date, whoever's selling the books at Walmart is speaking, they're there with bells on. But when it comes time to teach, when it comes down to the rubber meeting the road in the church, beyond entertainment, you can only count on a remnant within the church. And yet we think the whole church is going to make it into the kingdom. These parables will show that is not true. See, this was... Have you ever wondered? I mean, you just be honest with me. Because I've wondered. Have you ever wondered why the Scripture says the righteous are barely saved? So, well, what do you mean? Jesus did all the work. We're saved to the uttermost. The righteous are barely saved because those that have been credited with righteousness don't hang on to it. If the love of most grows cold, that means those that were credited with righteousness did not hang on to it. Now, should that surprise you? We saw that model with Israel. We saw it. All those that were called out were declared to be a kingdom of priests, a holy and royal nation. Those words were spoken about them, later applied to us. But was it true of the nation? No. But, oh, we're the church. That was those bad Jews. Come on, man. We ought to know better. Especially us who are Israel conscious. We ought to know better. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. That's Matthew 25, 26. You wicked, lazy servant. We want to hear the well done, my good and faithful servant. Who hears that? The one who produced an increase. You want to hear good and faithful servant? You must produce an increase. When you think about that scripture in Corinthians that said, well, one built with hay, stubble, straw, others precious stones. And the guy who built with the hay, stubble, and straw passed through the fire, but he himself was saved. He produced an increase. It just wasn't a good one. But he was working. He was trying. You know, he was trying. How many people are there out there that never do anything for Jesus? How many times in your life have you been unwilling to do what he told you to do? We don't have that option. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, if you got the bumper sticker in the Christian t-shirt and listen to whatever the Christian radio station is, you're going to heaven. It even makes me sick to say you're going to heaven. That's not what the Bible's about either. I mean, how far have we come that we we preach no fear of God? We preach a fairy tale Christianity. There is a kingdom of God that will be established on earth and you will not enter those gates. You will be outside with the wicked, with the lazy servants if you do not work the kingdom. So, well, that sounds like you're working for salvation. You're working because you were saved, not to get saved. Your salvation that has been given to you free is producing an increase. These guys did not work for the talents, for the money that was given them. They didn't earn those. It was a gift. It was given. But when they did nothing with it, they were called wicked and lazy. That's right. If you worked for it, it would be your wages. What difference would it make? Paul talked about that for a long time. Right. 
He's left with nothing. And here's the thing that I wanted to say and got off track. I heard of a woman who put her money on deposit with a bank that I worked at in the 70s in a non-interest bearing account. No different than this wicked lazy servant. She buried it basically. She put it on deposit in an account that earned no interest. The million dollars that she put in in the 70s, by the time the 90s come around, she still had her million dollars. But it was the same as if she had lost money because no, because there was no interest. Inflation. The million dollars 30 years later would not buy what the million dollars 30 years earlier would have. So it's like she lost. So get this. If she gave you the million dollars in 1970, you did nothing to increase it. By the time you gave it back in 2000 in relative buying power, you know what you did? You stole from her. Because what she could buy with in 1970, a million dollars, she cannot buy with in 2000. So this wicked, lazy servant, by his laziness, caused the master loss. And this is what Paul says in the book of Romans about Israel. He says, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Well, if Paul were living today, oh, Paul is alive today, but if Paul were standing in America today, he could say the same thing of the church. God's name is blasphemed among the lost because of you. Bunch of wicked, lazy servants that will not produce the kingdom's fruit. Verse 28, take the talent from him and give it back to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That parable speaking only to those who have been entrusted. Those, friends, are people that are in the body of Christ. We need to know that the Word calls us worthless if we do not produce fruit. I'm not saying that to condemn you. I'm saying that to compel you. We all have the rest of our lives ahead of us. All of us do. Whatever age you're at, the rest of your life is ahead of you. The kind of God we serve will allow you to make up in the last year of your life what you did not do in the previous 70 years of your life. He's a good God. He can take your five, fo- your five fish and five loaves and two fish and He can feed multitudes with it. He can give you the increase you were supposed to have if you'll simply be willing to work in His kingdom. Now, that was Lanyap. Because what we're fixing to get to is what I wanted to get to. Here, here comes the sheep and the goats. We're going to start this, and I'm going to stop a couple times, okay? And does anybody know what time we started preaching? Because I, I want this one to fit on a CD. About 7.30? Okay. We'll be doing all right. We be. <laughs> all right. Verse 31. No chapter divisions. Remember, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him. Help me with the time setting. When the Son of Man comes in His glory. So what are we talking about? The time period when the Son of Man comes in His glory. You know, that's, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Maybe I ought to read some of this and, well, we'll just see. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. 
All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Here enters the first problem. I want to be very clear about this, too. When I see something, I can be very dogmatic about it. If I'm not careful, I give the impression that anybody who hasn't seen what I see is somehow intellectually challenged or spiritually challenged or whatever. Very much not the case. I want to be very upfront with this. I was puzzled about this as I thought about the different possibilities earlier today. I believe Jesus made it clear. I only have what Jesus has given me. So that does not make me special. Do not take what I'm saying and make anybody who doesn't agree with this or hasn't seen it like I see it wrong. Don't do that. Instead, take it, chew up the meat. If you think there's bones in it, dwell on it for a while. And and let's let truth just permeate here. Okay? The first problem that we have is... He says that this is at the coming of the Son of Man, when the Son of Man comes. But we have all the nations there. In people's minds who place this at the end of the millennium, who place the sheep and the goats at the end of the millennium, this language sounds very much like the great white throne judgment at the end of Revelation 20. Because all the peoples are standing there. Here's what I would maintain. I'm going to tell you, and then we will go through the Scriptures of why I believe that. When he says... All the nations are standing there. I say, number one, he is speaking about his church and his church only that is made up of many nations. Many times in the Bible, the Bible says throughout the whole earth, and it was really the whole area of the earth that he was talking about. That might sound kind of far-fetched at first, but keep this in mind. Revelation says, speaking of a time period where the saints are presented to God, that there was a representative from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Okay? I think this is the same language. Here, here we go. The second problem that people find with placing this at the coming of Christ rather than at the end of the millennial reign is he banishes some people to an eternal fire. That eternal fire also appears at the end of Revelation 20. I'm telling you why people are compelled to put this at the end of Revelation. One is all the nations are there. It doesn't look like we're talking about just a select group. But all the nations are there. The second is eternal fire. With that in mind, I always have said, in fact, somebody will probably put it on my grave. You interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. The cry of the Reformation may have been sola scriptura. You don't buy the Scripture alone. The cry of my life is Scripture in light of Scripture. 90% of every error that I have ever seen in the kingdom and been able to identify came from not looking at the Scripture as a whole, but an isolated verse as a pivotal point of your doctrine. With that in mind, turn to Matthew 13. Now, we're not going to read all of these. I just want you to flip with me as we go through Matthew. I actually started in 1, but I thought this would be too long looking at every parable, so I picked up in 13. In Matthew 13, you guys can see that around the 24th verse, a parable of the weeds starts. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like one who sowed good seed in his field. We're not going to cover this parable. We don't have time. I want to tell you that if you examine that parable, you will find out that the field is God's people. All right? There's one field we're talking about, and it's God's people. And there was good seed sown in it, 
and bad seed sown in it. Later in Matthew 13, you see a net. This is 1347. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. Now, we're not going to read this parable either. Okay, that's your job. You go home and check it out. But the kingdom of heaven was like a what? A net. And it caught what kinds of fish? You will go on to find out that when they pull this net in, they look and there's two kinds of fish in it. The net is the kingdom of God. But there were two kinds of fish in that net. And what happened to the bad ones? They were thrown out. See, we're seeing a a process start to repeat here. This is that many people were called, but only a few are chosen. The kingdom of God is like a net. catches all kinds of fish, but the bad fish get thrown out. Turn to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, you've got the parable of the lost sheep. The 99 and the 1. They're all his sheep. The one's not lost. Not, not lost in the way we use the word lost. Still a sheep. We're talking about the people of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? So whether we were talking about the parable of the weeds, we're talking about the field of God. The parable of the gnat, we're talking about the kingdom of God catching all kind of fish. Now we've got sheep where some are straying, but we're still talking about God's sheep. Later in Matthew 18, you've got the parable of the unmerciful servant. Verse 21 of Matthew 18. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. We are talking about those who are servants of the king in this parable. Incidentally, do you know what happens to the unmerciful servant? See, we're talking about people in this parable who were all forgiven their debts. But one who had been forgiven his debts goes to another who owed him personally something. Not the king. Him personally something. And he choked him. God tells him, you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailer to be tortured. That is talking about Christians. When you have been forgiven by God all of your debt and you refuse to forgive another Christian, you cut yourself off from Christ. Yeah. Yeah, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brothers from your heart. We're talking about sons of God dealing with each other. See, you put Matthew in its context, and that is it is speaking to people who are supposed to be called by the name God. They were all Israel, and yet they were not all found to be Israel. So these parables apply to all of those who call themselves by the name Christ. And yet not all will be found to belong to Christ. So when, and we're going to keep going with this, but when in Matthew 25 you see all nations there, we're talking about all the nations that make up the body of Christ. Now, that's not provable. I'm hoping to lay a case here. Intellectually, that's not provable. This is a very debatable matter. I'm just telling you what I believe Jesus showed me. Let's see if the, as, as you go on from Matthew 18, you get to Matthew 20. Matthew 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in the vineyard. 
So we're talking about the owner of everything hiring people, right? So they're all in his employment. They're in his service. And some became envious of others. See, all of these parables have to do with the elect as a whole. Has nothing, we, you can't make the bad guy in these parables be the pagan in Buddhist China. It's not. They all apply to the body of Christ at large. At least all those who claim to be in the body of Christ. In the same way they applied to all of the Israelites. Because they were all called. See, many are called, but few are chosen. You follow me? Okay, we move on from Matthew 20. In Matthew 21. You have a parable of two what? This verse 28. Matthew 21, verse 28. The parable of two what? You mean one wasn't his son and the other somebody else's son? No, we've got a parable of two kinds of children. But they're children of God. They're sons of God. And one was obedient and the other wasn't. Which one do you think God was pleased with? See? And now... Immediately after Matthew twenty-one twenty-eight, in that parable... You see the parable of the tenants. Listen to another parable. This verse 33. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. Y'all not see a common thread in this? Always God is entrusting something to a group of people. Then he goes away for a while, comes back to check on it. Now... The people were in the employment of the landowner. This is talking about people that are in the body of Christ. Actually, it was talking about people who were within Israel. But it applies to us. If their promises apply to us, these principles surely must as well. Can't just take the good stuff. Look at verse 41, just so you get the end of the story. This is like reading the preface and reading the last chapter. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. People that had been in his employment, in his service, he called wretches and having a wretched end. Actually, he didn't. The, the people he was speaking against said that, but they were right. Yeah, and they answered it, and they answered correctly. Moving on from Matthew 21, you see in Matthew 22 the parable of the wedding banquet. And friends, revelation builds upon revelation, precept upon precept. I would not have gotten Matthew 25 correct if I didn't get Matthew 22 correct. But in Matthew 22, I understood after years of study in a moment what my years of study had not produced. And that's that these people make it to the wedding banquet because they all answered the call. They had all been invited. They had all received the word of life. But some were found to be inadequate, although they responded to the invitation. See, I, you say, oh, he, you know, he's off in weirdness. If I'm off in weirdness, then every parable that we've talked about tonight, I just got totally wrong. See, Scripture is in light of Scripture. I'd love to teach on Matthew 22 again, but I've already done it here. The point is, the invitation went out, people wouldn't respond. So they sent it out to people both good and bad, and when they all showed up, some didn't have on their wedding clothes. We looked in Revelation to interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. Look at what kind of garments they could be talking about. And it's the righteous acts of the saints. See, they showed up to the wedding, but they were not properly dressed. They were invited, though. 
See, many are called. Many people answer the call. We will follow you, Jesus. And they do for a time. Think about the parable of the sower. Only one didn't answer the call. The other three did. But two of those three went defunct. Most of the denominations say, oh, well, they were never saved. Luke says they fell away. I say all of this to say this one thing. When we're talking about a division or judgment, it starts with the body of Christ. And it could not be any more evident from the parables. In Matthew 25, there is no difference between the ten virgins that were all waiting for the bridegroom, the parable of the talents where all the servants were entrusted, and the sheep and the goats. All of these people are looking to one shepherd. But that one righteous shepherd divides them based on their production. What determines whether when the net that is the kingdom of God that pulls up fish, what determines whether a fish is good or bad? Matthew 27, or Matthew 7 tells us only good trees produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. That got me saved. This also brings perfect clarity to Matthew 7. Not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom. They answered the call. They believed that He's Lord. They say He's Lord. They responded to it. They're there. They're standing before Him. Huh? They're standing before Him. They are standing before Him. Kind of like all the nations here that are standing before Him, making up the body of Christ. But He's going to divide them, sheep from goats, based on whether or not they did the will of God, which was producing fruit. 1 Peter 4.17 speaks of judgment beginning with the house of God. And in its context, because I don't want to be accused here of something that's wrong, it's talking about you judging yourself while you're alive. But Paul says you judge yourself so that you don't come under judgment. See, here's, here's it in a nutshell. We are a kingdom of priests. We are a holy and royal nation. And God disciplines His sons first as an example for the world. Even as Israel went before us as a forerunner, and we learn from their example, now the Israel of God is going before the next age as a forerunner, as an example. We will stand before all of the people on the earth, and those of us that have done God's will will be rewarded. Those that are found to be wicked, lazy servants, although they were called by the name, will be thrown into a lake of fire in front of the lost. And then we enter into a millennial reign. I realize I've just made a huge jump there. So let me go to Matthew 25 and see if I can help close up some of those gaps. And I hope nobody listening to the CD turns it off before they hear the end. When the Son of Man comes, we're starting in 31, in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. A shepherd doesn't separate sheep from goats if they don't belong to him. See, we think of the goats not being the shepherd's belongings. They are. Shepherds in Israel kept sheep and goats. But it might become necessary to separate them because they're different species. Check into it. In the book of Leviticus, goats were sacrificed just like lambs. And they were both acceptable. 
He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, when this says all nations, I believe, as I've said before, based on all of those other parables, that what that means is all nations are represented there. Not that every nation on the planet, every single, it does not say every inhabitant of the earth is standing before him to be separated. It says all nations, all people groups are represented there in the body of Christ. That's how I take that. If you don't, it's okay, I forgive you. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. I don't think so, though. I'm, what I'm trying to say is you're not stupid if you don't agree with me. Do, do you understand? There's room for disagreement here. I guess. Then the right... <laughs> I'm sorry. No, there is room for disagreement here. I'm stubborn. Yeah, it's hard for me to say that. When you see something clearly, it's hard not to assume that everybody else sees it. But the problem is, there will be a spirit-filled brother that I love, that is godly, that hears from God just like I do, that will swear he heard from God the other way. And I'm not thinking one in particular. I'm just talking about that's how the kingdom works. In time, we will have to see which view God favors. And the way you do that is you see how it compares with the rest of the Word. If we have a piece in the wrong place, it will be removed. I believe, though, for the first time, I've got this in the right place and that all the other parables lead me to believe that. When I'm sitting here scratching my head going, well, which could it be? I could see it either way. I believe that Jesus spoke to me and said, it's like Matthew 22. And then I said, well, if it's like that, I wonder if the other parables bear witness. And I started in Matthew 1 and went forward. We left out about three parables that I believe show the same thing. Then the king will say, To those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. I cannot see Jesus saying that to us after we have been glorified for a thousand years. After you have been ruling and reigning with Christ for a thousand years at the end of a millennial reign. I cannot see Jesus saying that to you. You've already inherited the kingdom. All things are already yours. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. You know what Jesus will not be in the millennial reign? His body will not be in the millennial reign? In prison or sick or any of those things. It would be glorified. It would be the ruling. See, to me, now, there is no context in which you could put this. at the end of the millennial reign. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothes you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will... Can you imagine saying that to Jesus after you've been glorified a thousand years? I can't. Say, well, all right, well, this is not talking about the body of Christ. It's talking about people who were born in the millennial reign. What on earth would lead you to believe that? Well, I mean, what, what on earth would lead you to believe that? Not a thing. It's, it's having trouble with two other scriptures that push it there, and then you have to make it fit. I, just, I don't see it. I'm not throwing rocks at anybody that does, but I do not see that. I, I can only stand here and teach you what I do see. I can't tell you about what I don't see. And I don't see that. The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Getting away from the placement here for a minute. Understand something. The sheep were determined to be sheep based on what they did. Did for who? 
did for brothers, the body of Christ. Now, I suspect when they went to visit somebody in prison, they may not have been a member of the body of Christ at first. But as they served that person, they became a member of the body of Christ, fruit for the kingdom, and serving Jesus. See, we are supposed to be getting people, be getting, like the King James word, people like us. You're supposed to be inspiring others to be as you are, which ought not be a lazy bump on the log. Man, get motivated. Get on fire. Jump up and down sometimes. Ask God, hey man, I'm on duty. Not man, don't say that. Say, hey Father, I'm on duty. Help me here. I want to do something for you. Lord, I'm zealous and you've taught me. Let me put into practice according to my ability the talent you gave me. Now, if he hasn't given you the ability to sit down and debate with the Jewish rabbis, you know, in the Middle East and solve that conflict, then don't. But I assure you he's given you the ability to be his mouthpiece to your neighbor. You can say, I was blind and now I see, can't you? Then why don't you? Same reason I don't. Our lives are consumed with things beside the kingdom. They can't be. Now, there's a time when we will all have even more kids and our lives will be more established and there will be more people here and it will be tempting to not preach that so hard. Oh, it's okay. God wants you to have things and we know. And that's true. I understand. All of that's true. And yet, if you don't put the kingdom first in a real and practical way, by deed, not word only, then you're a wicked, lazy servant. I didn't say that. Jesus did. I don't even want to believe it. Because I'm in danger of being a wicked and lazy servant. I'm not talking to you as one who is uh, outside of this judgment. If I do not produce the kingdom's fruit, then I squandered what my master gave me. I have to. Here's how it was said by one of the prophets. Woe unto me if I do not preach. Jeremiah said it was fire. Paul said it's better that he remain alive because it means fruitful labor. How many Christians can say that? I'm alive because of the need for my fruitful labor. Most Christians think they're alive so they can sit on their gluteus maximus and watch Jerry Springer. They're waiting to fly away, to be blessed, to be rich, to get the anointed prayer cloth from Bishop Southern whatever, you know. They're hoping to inherit the drug dealer's limo, whatever it is that they've bought into. They're in church hoping gold will manifest so they can scrape it up off the floor and they'll be rich. You know, any stupid, asinine thing you can think of. We need to be about the kingdom's business. Now, I'll tell you, somebody that I have come to admire is Reinhard Bunker. I'm sure the man's not perfect. I've even heard some things that you know, I really don't like that he said. And people that he's been associated with. And yet there's one undeniable fact about the man's life. Not because he's preaching to millions. The guy's whole attitude is that of a, a war horse that will not slow down. His mission in life is to plunder the gates of hell and populate the kingdom of heaven. doesn't matter to me whether he understands all the deep things of God. He's producing fruit. Now, his fruit, according to his ability, is probably way beyond what all of us would do collectively. I don't say that to lift him up. I'm just saying that because we're a humble group of people here. But, proportionately, are we using what God gave us with the same vigor, the same attitude, the same intensity? He says, you pray for the will of God and I will run you over while I do the will of God. I love that. I love it. You know, in the spiritual line, 
with him stacked behind other cars, he can't wait in line. He's going to run you over because he wants to get to the goal. He's got a godly impatience to do the will of God. That's good. That is good. I want, uh, that's, that's a model. I don't want to be like Reinhardt. I want to be like Jesus. But I admire those that are being like Jesus. There is no room for apathy in the kingdom. That's not because I'm a young man I say that, and one day my mind should change when I get to be an old man. It's because the Bible says the time is short. Say, well, that's just what the apostles believed. Well, that's good enough for me. I believe it too. Whether short means 10,000 years, 2,000 years, 100 years, or 20 years makes no difference. The Bible says the time is short. Paul even counseled people about marriage. You know, hey, you sure you want to be tied down with that load? You, you could just serve God, man. You, you could just serve God. I mean, I'm saying this because of the situation we're all in. You could just serve God like, you know, what on earth do you want to worry about carnal pleasures for and pleasing people? And all? Serve God. That's, that was his attitude. Now, I'm not ready to go there. <laughs> I'm not. But what I'm saying is, we ought to have a zealousness to do the will of God. Not trying to get you to leave your wives. That's a papal thing. It's called the Petron privilege. <laughs> Peter left his wife for the privilege of Jesus. I don't believe that, but that's a whole other story. I guess we're to finish Matthew 25, huh? We read the good stuff. The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That is the second major problem that people come to. They say, well, how on earth are these people being thrown into the eternal fire with the devil and his angels? Why not just outside the kingdom or something else? Because the eternal fire is at the end of the millennial reign. The lake of fire, the second death, occurs after the great white throne judgment, right? Well, the problem with that is that Revelation, verse 20, Revelation 20, verse 10, speaks of the second death where the beast and false prophet had been thrown. See, at Jesus' coming, He throws the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire. Then we go through the thousand years. Then there's a great white throne judgment. And then all the dead come to life and more are thrown in there. Uh, Hades and uh, the sea give up the dead that are in them. We'll read that in a minute. My point is, what seems to be an issue that would push you towards the the end of the millennial reign, it, it doesn't. There are people at Christ's coming thrown into the lake of fire. The only ones we have named are the beast and the false prophet. But we see that if, if what I'm saying is true, also all those who wore the name Christ but did not live up to it. Now why would that be? Why would you do that? Because it sends out a resounding message to everybody in the millennium. I won't even tolerate in my own household disobedience. So where's the grace in that? The grace is this lifetime that we have. We sure don't mind when the Jews get cut off, you know. Yeah, burn them, Lord. Save us. I don't want to serve God with people that will not produce, that are not like-minded. Now, I'm not telling you everybody's got to be some kind of evangelist like Reinhardt. That's, that's not what I'm saying. Don't confuse it. But you do have to know. You do have to know that the king saved you for a purpose. 
You do have to work towards that. You can't be apathetic. How can you be set free from all your debts and not be excited enough to tell somebody? We'll finish up here. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Y'all turn to Revelation 20. We're going to close. Here's the thing. Oh, I'm pushing it on time. Here's the thing. What you do in this life, based on your faith, what your faith produces determines not only your standing in the kingdom of God, but your acceptance into it. That's part of the gospel that we just don't hear much. If you're saved, you're saved to do something. If you try and fail, you pass through the fire as one who's naked. That's okay. If you fail to try, you do not enter the kingdom of God. Every branch that does not bear fruit will be cut off and thrown in the fire. Some critic out there say, man, he didn't even turn there. He's taking that out of context. Well, come on, man. I mean, let's, let's, let's be honest about the Scripture. Let's not try to make it say what we want. My flesh doesn't want to hear this. I want to be able to sit on my couch and watch Star Trek all day. You know? Yeah, I'm a Trekkie. Huh? I'll put my Spock ears away tonight. I mean... I'm no more excited about that than you are. But it causes you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It causes you to run the good race, to fight the good fight. It causes you to be compelled to serve, which is what Jesus did. You know, Hebrews says, if you shrink back, he's not pleased with you. Well, what do you think it is if you never even advance? You never try. Worse than shrinkage. And incidentally, what about all the scriptures that said it'd be worse for him than if he had never believed at all? How is that possible? Well, it's possible because he was in the body of Christ and now he's thrown out with the goats. Yeah, it looks like you're going to get to roast a thousand years before everybody else. huh? Uh, let's get to Revelation 20. Let me read this close and then we'll talk about it. Yeah, it's getting the base tan. In, in with what company? I mean, witness in this great. You're you're in this eternal place of judgment, right? Not the parish prison anymore, or the county jail, but you are in the place that you're going to reside for an eternity, and you are called by the name Christian. You know, you thought you were a Christian. You said Lord, Lord, and he didn't know you. And who's the only other people in there with you? The beast and the prophet. <laughs> you know, those who are out there trying to deceive the lost. Man. Okay, Revelation 20. I know I do have to hurry. In fact, I'm probably going to have to edit this. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. 
I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. There's two resurrections. The devil's bound for a thousand years. The first resurrection is of the righteous. The second is of the unrighteous. Verse 7, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. And number there like the sand on the seashore. I promise I'm getting to a point here. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Okay, you got all the inhabitants of the earth, right? Deceived by Satan or at least the four corners of the earth, the nations gathered. They're deceived by Satan. They march on the city of God. This is after a thousand years. So this is the end of the millennial reign. What happens to the people that march on the city of God? Fire destroys them. Fire comes down from God and destroys them. They don't stand before Jesus. They don't have a long conversation. They're not separated like sheep and goats. Fire comes down and destroys them. They get burned. Now, what's funny is they get burned only to resurrect and get burned again. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. Get this, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. This is why Second Thessalonians says when Jesus uh, comes back, he'll destroy the Antichrist with the glory and splendor of his coming. They will be tormented day and night. Forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead. You remember that? Everybody who was alive at Christ's return, along with those who died, in fact, those who died first, were gathered to him. Now we're dealing with everybody who wasn't. All those who had died. And didn't partake in the first resurrection. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I don't have time to teach on it all, but we have gone from Matthew 24 through 25, and I just want you to get some framework here, okay, as I see it. And we'll support it after maybe we turn off the CD. At Jesus' return, he gathers the dead in Christ first, then we who are alive. He destroys the Antichrist and throws the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire. He gathers all who wear his name. Everybody who is supposed to be in the, all the called. Everybody who answered the called from every nation to him. And he separates out the weeds, the bad fish, those that were unmerciful, 
the second son, the bad tenants, those who were improperly dressed, those who had no oil, those who gave no increase, and those that did not serve the body. And he glorifies us. Then Satan's bound for a thousand years. We rule and reign in the millennium. After the thousand years, people are deceived again. Certainly not the body of Christ. They're burned. There's a resurrection of all the dead, spiritually dead and physically dead, that have ever lived. And they're judged. They're judged according to what they did. In other words, they're punished according to their deeds because their names were not found written in the book of life. If your name was in the book of life, you're not punished for your deeds, but you are punished for what you do not do. (laughs) Got me? Okay, we're going to close here and then we'll open up for questions because we just won't fit on the CD. So we're closed now.